cyclists you know uh, we get a lot of people through the shop people that just come in and say hello you know uh, we get Spanish people French people all nationalities and uh, every day is different and uh, makes it really interesting in the environment that we are yeah yeah and obviously you do coach a lot of athletes and triathletes um, you've tried to get me around the Ironman course under 10 hours which you haven't done yet mate uh, you still owe me you've got to get me under that 10 hour mark but and, and also the, your race series over at Heffron Park the Tuesday night Eastern Suburbs uh, Criterium Series. Oh, it's a, it's a great commitment to have, you know. Like, I get up every morning and I do something that I love, you know. I coach a lot of people in, uh, in triathlon, in bike racing, and it's uh, trying to get you under 10 hours would be a great achievement for me, personally, and I think we can do that. Okay, well, that's, thanks, Matt. Well, we're gonna, I've got a pencil in the race and we'll knuckle down and do it. Absolutely. It may mean less rosé this time, but we'll see. <laughs> 
Anyway, well, speaking of rosé and fun times and laughter, I think we should uh, put a call in to Aaron Lee over in New Orleans and see how he's doing, eh? What do you think? Okay, Brent? sounds good. Terrific. Welcome back to What a Ride. I'm Rupert Guinness, my usual colleague, partner in crime in this uh, show, Aaron S. Lee. He's not here in Sydney where we're recording at Albion Cycles with Frank Conceso, our special guest. He's the owner of Albion Cycles. But as I said before, Aaron S. Lee is over in the United States of America in New Orleans, or should I say New Orleans. Perhaps he could let us in and tell us how do you pronounce it. Aaron, good day, mate. How are you doing? Patrick Bavin raced in Ireland last year, or yes, last year, and uh, pretty much wore the yellow jersey from first day to, to about the third day. But what an exciting bike rider he's going to be. That was the uh, the Raz in Ireland. Thank you. 
we, we saw him, uh, he's just going from strength to strength, and in Australia right now, no one can touch the guy. He's unbelievable. No, he, he's going to be good. And the great thing about it, he's, he's signing a four-wall contract, from what I understand. Um, I think he received the contract today from what ACJ has told him. He's going to sign it. By the time this airs, he, he will be a, he'll, he'll be Canada Garmin. And the, the good news is that ACJ gets to keep him for the rest of the season for Avanti. Because at the moment, I believe he is leading the Cycling Australia National Road Series at the moment. Uh, a, a series crowd that was won by his his Avanti teammate, Joe Cooper, the reigning New Zealand National Road Race champion, um, last year. Yes, that's right. Hey, yeah. hey just, just another thing, Aaron, while you're there, um, obviously the uh, race across America was, was uh, you know, uh, recently run, and I know that you you know a fair bit about that race, and you were very close with the uh, Velo Roos from Australia, who did really well, and uh, by the way, great spread, uh, that great read you did for Cyclist Magazine on them, but uh, obviously the story as strong and successful as it was, um, you know, hasn't ended as well. Um, and you can explain a little bit about that with the accident of one of their team members since she came back. Oh, absolutely. Of course, we, we touched base on that story last week. There, there, there hasn't been a lot of development going on since then. Basically, Sarah Matthews, one quarter uh, of the four-woman all-Australian team, all four, by the way, triathletes, um, who competed in the ultra-marathon cycling event, the race across America, won the race, and uh, 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 I'm going, I think, off the top of six days, I believe they did it in six days, they broke a 19-year record, they did it so fast, um, uh, amazing, amazing effort, but uh, unfortunately, when they when they returned back to Australia, Sarah was on a, on a, on a training run, because she's preparing for the, uh, she was preparing for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Austria, along with uh, one of her other teammates, um, Julianne Hazlitt, um, and of course their other teammate, uh, Natasha Horn, preparing for the ITU Sprint World Championship in Chicago. But while running across the Anzac Bridge, Sarah was hit from behind by a cyclist, and it caused her to fall and hit her head, and uh, it, it, it definitely did a bit of damage, unfortunately, and it's left her in a medically induced coma. Um, over this past week, so it's actually a group, I think it's, it's been almost two weeks now. Wow, okay, well, I mean, uh, we wish yeah. to see I, did, I, I did get an update from Julianne Hazlitt um, just last night, um, and she said that uh, that she is being, the medication is being reduced each day to, to slowly revive and bring Sarah back into consciousness. They all signs of they seem to be positive, but they really just don't know yet as to what any short-term or long-term damage may be. So our thoughts right now are still with Sarah. Um, we're still with her family in the, in the Belarus, and um, and we wish her the best. Okay, well, yeah, like I said, we wish her well. We've got to be cautious about saying exactly what condition she's in, because I guess these things change uh quite regularly and can happen quickly. Hey, um, just, just while you're there, I know you mentioned about the footy you're going to. Uh, what about, you know, for people who haven't been to where you are now, I mean, uh, like you said, you've got this interview with Michael Ferret we're going to listen to later on, is uh, in the French Quarter. I mean, uh, I've got a feeling that you, you're the sort of guy who would gel pretty well into the uh, nightlife there in the French Quarter. <laughs> well, yes, uh, uh, Rupert, Frank, I, I, I am. I'm, I'm having a great time being back home. I am from Louisiana, 
And uh, the great thing about Louisiana, what I like to tell people, is that um, it's one of the more unique, unique, unique states, and New Orleans being even more unique um, in the fact that there have been nine national flags that have flown over um, New Orleans, including, Frank, uh, Portugal, uh, along with Spain, Mexico, France, um, England, uh, the Confederacy at one point. Um, so you can imagine over the last 350 to 400 years, that is a lot of architecture. That's a lot of influences on food and music, um, culture, lifestyle, everything. So the New Orleans has something, it's more of an international, um, it's more of a European style city than probably any other city in the United States. And it, it's a special, special place. And I absolutely love it. There's, there's always somewhere to go, somewhere to be. And at any given night, there are about 400 live music venues cranking at, uh, at any one time here in, in the city. And there's always a Marsalis or a Neville. Um, you can catch them uh, playing live. It's just a phenomenal city. That's hot. Right now, it's about a, a 100 degrees today, which is about 40, 41 degrees with a 90, um, 90, 90 to 100% humidity. Um, so it's quite hot, quite muggy, quite sticky. So it's always best to find yourself in a nice, cool, dark place with a cold, refreshment room. Oh, well, thanks for letting us. It's, it's cold and brisk here in the winter's morning in, in Sydney, but uh, the sun's out. Hey, Aaron, um, we, we, we probably let, better let you get to the football, but uh, thanks for, for uh, taking the call today. We'll, um, we'll touch base off, as always, for the next uh, future episodes while you're travelling around there. I've seen some of your great photos on your Facebook as well there keeping us in touch with where you're going. I don't think we're seeing all the photos. Well, no, absolutely. Listen, and, and, and before you just run me off, Rube, hey, <laughs> uh, a, a couple of things. I want to I want to find out and get Frank's take while we've got him here, because it's what a special time to have him. Thanks for filling in for me, Frank. You, uh, I, I can't believe you wait till um, I leave to buy back to the shop um, to host the show. But uh, listen, uh, I hear just breaks. Just breaks have, have made their way into the Peloton now here in August. Um, is this something being a you know you've got one of the best bike shops in Australia? Um, is this something that you see posted over as a, as a trend? Um, look, it's not uh, yet um, for sure. A lot of people are still a little bit uh, funny about the disc brakes and um, the UCI regulations still not out yet. So I think people are waiting for that to happen. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the love um, regarding my Jay McCarthy piece as well. Who, by the way, signed a contract extension for takeoff Saxo. Yeah, good news, wasn't it? He, he heard that one, didn't he? Oh, he, he did. He did. What a what a great young man. And I tell you what, if, if, for the listeners out there, if you, if you don't know who Jay McCarthy is, shame on you if you're a cycling fan, because you should. This guy could be the next best. Yeah, now speaking of this best thing, I know you've got to get to the football now. Behave well, no streaking at halftime, and uh, and be a good boy out there. Hey, right, thanks so much, guys. Take care. All right. All the best. Step 
over in the United States. But with me today is Frank Conceso from Albion Cycles as our special guest, Frank. Um, some interesting things that Aaron spoke about there, wasn't it? Yes, it is very interesting. He's an interesting guy. He's a very interesting guy. <laughs> I wonder what he's doing now at the football. Yes, yes, I don't want to think about it right now. Hey, um, we, uh, another person who's an interesting guy is Matt White, who you know very, very well. Oh, he's almost a neighbour, really, when he's back here in Australia. The, Head Sports Director of Orica Greenedge. Um, 
He's uh, he's really sort of established his name as one of the leading sports directors, hasn't he, in, in cycling? Well, you know, um, known Matt White for a lot of years, and Matt is a um, you know extraordinary guy, a good communicator, uh, and a good person, and um, and he's doing such a great job. And you can see the differences when he's not there to when he is there. Mm. He can uh, change the riders from a low point to a high point very quickly. And he is, a, you know, he is a neighbour down the road as well, so I see him quite often. You know, it's, it's interesting that sometimes some of the, the best, say, sports directors or even coaches in, in different sports, they're not always uh, the former stars. They're, they're guys who are like in Matt White's role in his sports cycling, he was a domestic. But sometimes you see a footballer who's, who might have been the reserve player, but they, they may only have played for their country or their state or club a couple of times. But when they get that coaching opportunity, they really know how to communicate well with the with their athletes and they know how to bring the best out of them and then also how to handle the superstar marquee names in the team. What you do, look, you just have a look at other sports like in football, uh, Jose Mourinho, for example, he was never a great footballer but he's a great coach. Mm -hmm. um, we say that uh, Matt was a domestic but I think Matt was better than that um, and uh, he showed that in the, when he was a young guy in the national team. He showed when he was a professional, and now as a director, he's just uh, he's just got the goods that it takes. Frank, you've been on the national team uh, years back as a, as a mechanic. Yes. Um, uh, as listeners out there will, there's a lot about Frank. That Frank's done a lot of different things. We'll only touch a few of them probably <laughs> in the show. But uh, you know, when 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 you were on the national team and you said you knew uh, Matt White, then what was he like as a young rider, and you were having to work closely with him as as a mechanic? Look, I, uh, you know, you're very close to these guys. Um, as a mechanic or as a part of the team, you eat with them, you sleep with them, not literally, but uh, um, you spend a lot of time with these guys. And Matt was, um, he's like a friend, you know. Mechanics have a, a days, bad days as well, and they're always out there, the same as Darren Smith was. Um, you know, uh, Ricey and all those guys were there then. Um, Matt was a very special guy in those days, and he still is, obviously. An, an interesting part of the Matt White story is also how, you know, his, his wife, Jane Savile. Oh, what a, great, what a great person she is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And having the kids now, I mean, uh, uh, great kids, and I think there'll be a couple of champions out of those children. If for those who don't know, uh, Jane was a champion walker. That's right. And uh, there's that, still that memory of the Sydney Olympics, her coming into the stadium, and she got the second red card. And got, yeah, got disqualified. Unbelievable. Uh, it's, uh, and, but how well she took it. I mean, it sort of reflects the humility of, of Matt and Jane together. You know, they, you know, they're really they're elite athletes. They were elite athletes, but those, to be able to take that and still move on with their lives, um, a lot of other people would have just crawled them. I think there's a lot to learn from that. Um, and uh, I see Jane quite often. She pops in the shop with the kids and all that. And um, she's just a, a very... Uh, both people are very special people. Yeah. And that's what makes them great stars of the past. Well, for those who you know, are wondering a bit more about Matt White, uh, in our last episode we had an interview with him, the first of a two-part series, which was you know wrapping up the Tour de France and how Oracle Greenidge went or didn't go in the tour. Um, well, we've got the second part of that interview now, Frank, where uh, Matt will talk about the team from now. Talk, starting off with uh, talking about Caleb Ewan, how he's tracking and what he hopes to do. He talks about the possibility of him doing the Welter this year and also how the team's tracking with a view to the World Championships, Michael Matthews and Simon Gerrans, if he can stay on his bike this time. That's right. And also, um, and also how the team is sort of uh, evolving in 
into a different sort of team where they want to get uh, riders to go for the general classification. Do you think they're heading in the right way, Frank? I think so. Look, it's like any team. You know, you, they've gone very well for a few years and won a lot of stages. And there's a downer somewhere. You know, you know you're always not going to be up there. And uh, obviously there's critics out there about the teams. But I think they're rebuilding now. And um, if they can stay on their bikes, I think... Um, the chance of uh, having someone right up there on the tours is a very good possibility. Well, how about we just have a listen to see what uh, Matt White has to say? Sure. Well, just a few days after the Tour de France, we spoke to Matt White, the head sports director of Oracle Green Edge, on what a ride about the fallout from the tour, literally, but also metaphorically, because it's a pretty dramatic race. The Oracle Green Edge team, though, has still been continuing on in uh, its, in its in its ways in a pretty f- positive way. Uh, soon after the Tour de France began, the Tour of Poland got underway. And it wasn't long till we saw Caleb Ewan of Oracle Green Edge right amongst the fray there. He got a second place uh, behind Marcel Kittel. On stage two, he had an unfortunate crash, but certainly um, Caleb's shown that he's right up amongst there uh, with the top-line sprinters in the world based on previous form this year. So, Matt White... What is your take about how Caleb sort of got back onto the uh, swing of things at the Tour of Poland? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's, been, a, it's been a positive start. Uh, after his, uh, his last race in Tour of Korea, in June, where he uh, wrapped up a couple of stages and the overall, uh, he had a little bit of a spell. And uh, we, had a, we spoke about the second part of the season. And, well, the first part of the season was all about bringing confidence with Caleb. From, you know, sprinting successfully involves a lot of confidence and trust in your teammates. And that was the goal at the start of the season. You know, to rack up 10 wins by June was pretty impressive. But the second part of the season was to put him in a little bit deeper into the uh, there and uh, throw him up against some of the best sprinters in the world. And he's been he's got off to a great start in Turopolon with, like you said, a second place to Marcel Cattell, first stage. Uh, he's involved in a uh, unfortunate touchdown yesterday. But, uh, look, he's OK. He's bounced, out, he's bounced out of that pretty good. And uh, he's going to be lining up uh, in another couple of stages, uh, sprint opportunities in Tour of Poland. And uh, look, he's, been, he's been told if he wins the stage in Tour of Poland, he will be going to the Tour of Spain. Otherwise, uh, we've, got, we've got a very good program mapped out for him uh, for the second part of the season regardless. It's, it's pretty impressive year when, you, I mean, besides his win, the wins he's got, um, you know, he did finish, uh, he's got a second place to Mark Cavendish, he's got a second place to Alexander Kristoff, and, and now to Marcel Kittel, albeit without the Tour of Poland being finished yet. Um, you know what those top-line sprinters think and, and, and how they do look at their rivals. What, what's your vibe about how the Cavendish, Kristoffs and Kittels, how they regard uh, Caleb now? Yeah, look, I think uh, they know that he's got the talent. Uh, they haven't come across the spring of this young for a while. Uh, and he, he's hungry. He's hungry. Uh, look, I just spoke with Caleb overnight after his crash here in Poland. And I suppose the, uh, the most thing he's upset about is not actually crashing, it's that not winning. And that, that's the sort of mindset that, uh, that you like to see in a sprinter. Yeah, that, that die-hard attitude, because at the end of the day, those guys, you know, he's crashed yesterday at 60 kilometres an hour, and he's got to line up 24 hours on and do it again, and you've got to have that attitude as a sprinter, and, and uh, we've got a special one on our hands with Caleb, and uh, yeah, his season's been progressing very, very well, but he's, he's definitely a rider for the future, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to put a team around him uh, that's going to grow over the next couple of years, and Look, we're going to have uh, we're going to have an exciting announcement uh, within within a week or two about some more backups to help Caleb and his and his goals for the future. 
Well, look, you you did mention about how if he does win a stage on the Tour of Poland, he'll get a gig at the Vuelta a España, the, the, the third of the three Grand Tours. Um, if he doesn't go, I mean, uh, or if he still goes, I, I do know you have another handy uh, young Scandinavian sprinter on your roster already. I mean, uh, will he be going either way? Uh, we won't be. What we're going to do with, uh, with Magnus... Magnus Court, he's going to be targeting the one-day races uh, in preparation for the World Championships as well. And if, look, if, if we do want to go with Caleb, uh, Caleb will only be going for the first eight to nine days. Uh, a three-week tour at 20, 20 years of age is, is too much. So the, the plan would be to develop, show him, you know, what you know, the biggest stages, one of the biggest stages of the world is like. He's probably only going to get two chances in that in that eight to nine days. But uh, look, if Caleb doesn't go to uh, to the Welter. He's going to end up riding in you know, Hamburg or Alberta or Kuwait. He's got, a, he's got a busy program, and he's already had a busy year already. So it's um, look, he's going to get his good chances, and he's certainly not finished with his uh, win count this year for, for the rest of the year. Now you did mention that uh, Oracle Greenwich will be you know, naming a, a, an exciting prospect to to help Caleb in the next days, but uh, my understanding is you already do have a, a new recruit from Tinkoff Saxo who was riding in the Tour de France, who's got who's quite a character. We do. We've got uh, Christoph Jules Jensen. Uh, he's, he's a Danish uh, Danish boy, but he's actually got an Irish mother, so he speaks with an Irish accent. And uh, he has actually been a big part of uh, Alberto's Contador season so far with uh, with him and also Peter Sargent in, in Flemish classics with Serrano Jadica and part of uh, Contador's winning Giro team. He's uh, 25 years of age and uh, he's... He's a very versatile character. He won the Danish Time Trial Championships in June, and uh, I'm really looking forward to having him on board. He's, he's going to fit in uh, straight away into, the, into our team. So we can see we can see that. And uh, a very versatile guy. That, you know, I think he's got a lot of improvement to go at 25. But uh, you know, look, we've, we've been gradually building a, a GC team over the last couple of years, and you know, to have a rider who's been part of uh, you know, Alberto Contador's winning Giro team and. It's a big bonus because that sort of experience, it's hard to come by. And at 25 years of age, to handle the pressure of being part of a winning Giro team is... It fits very well with me. Yeah, because that's pretty interesting because a lot of people don't realise when, you, when you're thinking ahead for the future, you know, most people think of the stars you want to recruit and all that sort of stuff, but certainly you've got to think of those nuts and bolts people and when you've got someone as young, and as I did say, he does sound to be a guy who, who um, obviously a great rider, very strong rider, but he, he does bring his own personality uh, to a team which at tense moments can help a team to relax, I'd say, over the dinner table. Definitely, definitely. And look, we, we we put a lot of effort into our recruitment, and and, and especially with the foreigners, because look, at the end of the day, the Aussies, we know all the Aussies, and yeah, it's, it's a small cycling, cycling community. But whereas the foreigners, uh, look, our team's not for everyone, uh, just like uh, looks like just like French teams not for everyone, or Italian teams not for everyone. So you, you've got to you've got to choose the right personalities. One thing is about people's physical abilities and what they do on the bike, but it's also whether that person's going to gel in the culture of the team and, uh, and Christoph is, is, is going to gel very, very quickly. Now, you talk about the, uh, the uh, mixed uh, lollies in the Oracle Green Edge uh, lolly jar there. You've got a very exciting guy uh, in Esteban Chavez from, from Colombia who's, who's uh, already impressed you guys since he's ridden with you, but uh, this year he's going to uh, try and go for the GC. I understand the overall classific- classification in the, uh, in the Vuelta. Is that still on, on the cards? 
It is still on the cards. Look, I think uh, I think over the last couple of days we've seen the announcement of the confirmation of uh, of Quintana for the Welter, of uh, Nibali for the Welter, and obviously Rodriguez was targeting already, and same as Alberto. So look, the cream of the cream uh, of the Tour de France are going to be at the Welter this year. So look, it's going to be a great challenge for him. Uh, we're, we're realistically. He, he attempted in his first year comeback after injury uh, to ride a general classification, and that went well for two and three weeks. And I think a year on with the Giro and uh, obviously Tour of Switzerland and, and a busy first first part of the season program in his legs, I think it's look. I think it's a realistic goal that we can try to target you know, a top ten place. Whether that's going to happen this year or not, we'll find out. But look, he's going to be supporting uh, Esteban 100 percent. Since Tour of Switzerland, he's back in uh, in Colombia. Uh, he lives with three and a half thousand metres above sea level, so he's had a he's had a free altitude camp at home uh, for the last six weeks, and he'll be coming back down about ten days before the welter. And uh, he's in good shape, good morale, and uh, really looking forward to. Uh, having a second go at that tourist fame. And it's been a credit to you guys that you still contracted him because I know about his story with, uh, with the accident from his, from his crash and, uh, and the situation that he was in with his arm. I mean, maybe you can just sort of uh, let our audience know briefly about that situation because, uh, you know, Oracle Greenwich certainly put a lot of faith in him, but I understand he's uh, certainly repaying it pretty well. Yeah, so the uh, 13 months before we signed him, actually, he actually won, uh, won Tour de Avenue, which uh, for people who don't know, that's Tour de Avenue is basically the um, Tour de France for under 25s. Uh, now, these days, it's contested by national teams, and it's a very, very good indication of uh, the, the level of uh, you know, under 25s who, who aren't already professional uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the elite division. And Esteban won general classification there a couple of years ago. And uh, the next year, uh, the next year in February, the first first series of races he did in the year, he had a, he had a very bad crash. And uh, he did some nerve damage, uh, which affected his, uh, his right arm. And after a few months, the, it wasn't getting any better. And so he had to, he had to make some pretty drastic surgeries that to uh, connect nerves from other parts of his, of his back. And basically that, that operation was going to be beside his career. Now, if, if uh, those nerves didn't uh, reconnect, uh, you put it this way, he, he couldn't shake your hand properly. He couldn't raise his arm above uh, his shoulder uh, when, when we actually signed him. Uh, so, look, we had, we had causes in there, obviously, with medical staff uh, at, at a certain time in the year that we weren't happy with his development. But we were the only team who actually took a pun on him because he was obviously off the radar for the whole season. Uh, but look, we, we, we met him, we spoke with him, we did a bit of background searching. I mean, obviously, Lightning is a great indication of his level at the under-23 level, but he's a very mature, very mature young man. Uh, and look, even when he came to the team, he didn't, when he, we first met him, he didn't speak English. He speaks very, very good English at the moment. Uh, and he's, he's a very, very dedicated athlete and he's, he's worked very, very hard to come back from a, a career-threatening accident. To be at the level where he was at last year, he's first year back, and, and this year looking at bigger and better things. Well, that's a pretty amazing story. When you hear of uh, the cutthroat nature of professional sport, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a message out there that, you know, uh, people who put in will get back and return, both as an athlete and, uh, and as a team, I hope, too. You know, so I think it's a credit to all parties that you guys have been able to, to pull that off. And uh, it's going to be really exciting, I think, for Aussie fans to sort of get used to the name Esteban Chavez. Yeah, look, it's... Uh and look, anyone who knows him or seen any interviews with him, he's, uh, he's a really pretty bubbly little character. And 
it's, it's a combination. I'm pretty excited about next year. I'm uh, getting a little bit ahead of myself. But you know, with the Yates, with the, with the Yates brothers and Esteban going into the Tour de France with three genuine climbers, whether, whether we're going for general classification or not next year, we're certainly going to have three world-class climbers for next year's Tour de France. And although all under the age of 24 or 25, you know, it's, it's exciting for us. It's taken a couple of years to happen. But uh, it's been a good evolution, and uh, how far that evolution is going to go in the next 12 months, uh, only time will tell. But it's, it's certainly exciting for us. Well, Matt, that uh, sounds like a, a ride worth going on, if you ask me. Uh, and hopefully we'll be saying very soon, what a ride. But uh, thanks for joining us, as always, on the show, mate. And, uh, Matt, we'll, uh, we'll touch base soon to see how the progress of Oracle Green Edge is going along. Certainly, too, mate. We obviously have got a lot of uh, a lot of goals still to come with the Walter and the Canadian races, and obviously finish off with uh, Tour of Lombardy. It's uh, yeah, still got a lot of racing to go, and uh, been motivated guys to get uh, get some more results for the team. Okay, good on you, Matt. Thanks very much, and well done. Thanks, Matt. Hey. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes, an airplane. Lenny Bruce is not a
It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. Now I feel fine. cycles in sunny Bronte in sunny Sydney on a cold winter's morning. Uh, Frank, uh, that was interesting what uh, Whitey had to say, but uh, uh, what we're going to talk about now is a bit of triathlon, a change of pace, um, obviously different sort of mindset, a different lifestyle than cycling. Um, you know, we're going to soon talk to Phil Rockner uh, from firstoffthebike.com, but before we put that call into to, uh, Phil, uh, you've got a lot of experience in triathlon yourself, you've coached triathletes, they're a, a different breed of athlete, aren't they? They are definitely a, di a different breed. Don't be fair now. <laughs> <laughs> different breed of people. Um, I wouldn't say they're a lot harder. They'd be, you know, like a tour, a tour athlete. They're very, very strong people, very strong will to, to be able to do three sports. So, you know, totally different sports altogether and different set of mind, you know. What's, what's, what's the biggest challenge uh, in your coaching capacity? What's the biggest challenge of coaching triathletes as a part to coaching cyclists? Look, I think the, the biggest thing is uh, trying to put three sports together, which is very difficult for anyone to achieve. And that's why that, um, you know, to, to get your athletes up there, it's not an easy task for any coach, to be honest. Has there been any triathlete or uh, a couple of triathletes that really sort of stood out for you as... Uh, athletes that you've actually thought, well, you know, you really admire them for what they've achieved or, or trying to achieve? Well, yes, I mean, uh, there's two people that I had uh, been involved with. Uh, one was Carla Moreno from uh, Brazil. And um, to, uh, to be able to train so hard in Brazil and to achieve what she achieved to go to the Olympics in 2000 was absolutely amazing since that uh, where they trained is, you know, Brazil is not an easy place to train and uh, she managed to get to the Olympics. And the other guy was Craig Walton, you know, the best swimmer in triathlon at that time and the best uh, cyclist. Um, and, you know, also great people and to achieve what they have is amazing. Now tell me, you, you, you own a bike shop. Um, who are your best clients, triathletes or cyclists? Who, who, who what type of person puts, invests more money? Or maybe it's not the amount of money, maybe it's the amount of bikes they buy, whatever. I mean, who's the, What's the balance of your clientele? Well, that's a hard, hard it's an easy and a hard thing to say. Um, a lot of people spend a lot of money. I think this day and age, it's not so much the triathlete. Obviously, the triathlete does more sports. They do a lot more on bike. Uh, but I think, to be totally honest, it's the older guys now that are coming into the sport mm -hmm. that are spending a lot of money on bikes and uh, doing a lot of training. I find that more of the new thing more than uh, triathlete versus a bike rider. We're talking about the mammals there, aren't we? We are. Uh, Hearing me. Okay, well, look, how about we put a call into Phil 
Phil Rockner from firstoffthebike.com and let's see, look, let's get an update to see what's doing in triathlon. Phil, welcome back to the show, mate. Uh, how are you doing and uh, how's this world of triathlon been going since uh, we spoke to you last week? Uh, thanks for having me back. I must be doing something right. I've got, uh, got back on, the, on, the, on, the, on your wheel route. I'm very happy with that. Uh, <laughs> look, it's uh, another big week in triathlon. It's, this time of the year is exciting. It's, it's a great time to be involved in the sport because we have what we like to call as uh, the world title time. And we'll be deciding three world titles within uh, six weeks, starting ITU, then 70.3, and then on to the, uh, the big dance in, uh, in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is exciting, mate. And it's, uh, it's uh, I guess, for the sport um, and the coverage of the sport, is it, uh, I mean, it keeps you very busy, doesn't it? I mean, how do you, how do you find the, um, the uh, how does the mainstream media sort of uh, pick up the sport these days with, with covering it? How do you find that they're handling it? Oh, they don't. At the moment, okay. uh, in Australia at least, they're, they're dominated by ball sports. You know, the EPL just started in England. You've got uh, September 11, the start of the NFL season, which means college football is going to be starting as well in America. So, you know, it, triathlon is niche, there's no doubt. There's, we, we know that. Everybody's uh, across that. The fact that it has an Olympic status helps it. But in mainstream media, it helps once every four years, to be honest with you, Rube. Uh, yeah, I work on a couple of uh, other commercial outlets in the... Uh, Getting a triathlon story across to them is really—you've uh, got to pitch it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, you, you know, uh, we were talking before, just uh, before we went on air, about the about professional athletes and um, you know whether there's a qualifying. Well, there is a qualifying system to get a, a professional license, but whether the, the depth of professionalism is is strong enough to actually sustain it as a as a profession. I mean, what's your view on that? And I mean, is it is it hard or is it too easy to get a license. Well, it's it's. There's a couple of things that have been circling uh, the triathlon world this week, and we've been covering one of those. We wrote a piece about it with uh, one of our professionals, Maddie White, who from South Australia, who wrote, "It is too easy to become a pro." And and more importantly, Ruth, it's important that people understand that it, it, once you get your pro license, it's almost impossible to lose it. Not like when when you have performance issues in other sports or you have injury, you lose your ranking, you slide down the rankings in tennis, for example, or golf or surfing. You, you know, you have to hold on to your ranking. In triathlon, there's no ranking. There's not really a ranking system. If you want to race Kona, you try and get your KPR points up, etc. But the Federation, Triathlon Australia, for example, will rubber stamp your pro card every year. And uh, there's something wrong with that. There's something really, really wrong with that. Yeah, so like I, I could become a pro if I wanted to, could I? Uh, you probably, you and I could probably uh, make a run at it, but to tell you how lax, the, to tell you how lax they are, the federation guys, is that uh, Jason Shortis, who retired last year, mm-hmm. got his pro card stamped again this year. So who's, where's the checks and bounds? Where's somebody saying, okay, here's our list of professionals, mm-hmm. uh, and what's happening with that? You know, it's like you know, in any sport, you have ups and downs. When you have good years, you have bad years. You know, you've got to deal with that. In triathlon, you can do whatever you like, essentially, and still remain a professional in the sport. You know, I think it's laughable, and I think the sport's going to suffer because it has this stigma of amateurism attached to it. And while that's not being allowed to happen, and you don't maintain a minimum standard, and while we laugh about becoming pros, um, what it does for the sport is it doesn't give it uh, an element of professionalism, which yeah, that's true. Like Frank, I mean, you've seen both sports evolve. I mean, how do, how do you, when you see the the professional cyclist and, and you see the professional triathlete, what, what what's your feel about that? Oh, look, I, 
I think there is a problem, as Lee says, you know, like in, in, both, in both federations there's problems, you know, and as he says, you know, it's got to be fixed somehow or other. I think cycling's a little bit different. You can't just go out there and get a pro licence. Uh, what you can, this day actually you can, because as soon as you become a continental team, you have a pro licence. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's too easy to become a pro, as Lee says. Yeah, yeah. Phil, Phil. Uh, sorry, Phil. Sorry, I was talking about Lee. <laughs> That's all right, Fred. Oh, sorry, Frank. <laughs> hey, uh, hey. You know, guys, the, the, issue, the issue is, and this is, the triathlon's key issue is, this is when, you know, when you're talking about the difference between cycling and triathlon, there's one critical difference, and, 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 that's, this is, and this is what's holding back the sport of triathlon, is that there is not one single governing body. The, the, the UCI runs everything that's on two wheels, and that, like it or love it, there is a, you know, there is that standard in place. And it's coming out of one uh, one body. Whereas in triathlon, there's not one governing body. In Ironman racing and in seventy point three racing and in uh, non-drafting Olympic distance racing, there could there is no regulation. The only regulation there is is in the ITU sphere where they've got the Olympic Games. And outside of that, there is no one who's actually doing the administering of this. And this is what's killing the sport. Is there's not some centralised body saying, "Hang on, minimum standard for this, maximum standard for that." These are the rankings. This is the rules. There is nothing. So, as a pro, guys, you can show up to a race and you can have uh, one set of drafting rules, one set of uh, passing rules. The week later, show up to another race with a different set of rules. That alone says to me something's broken. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You've got to have consistency, haven't you? And uh, and then it ends up, you know, creating different sort of athletes too, don't they? I mean, you could be a an athlete that suits one sort of rules and then uh, you may not suit the other and then uh, uh, then you try to market that and promote it and sell it as a brand, it's pretty hard. But you, you hit the nail on the head too. There are races that have a seven metre drafting rule. Now, anybody knows anything about drafting, if you're within seven metres, you might as well be sitting on the back wheel. Yep. So those who are less likely to be strong cyclists can go to those races, but in the, the uh, Middle East where there's a 20 metre drafting rule mm. and you're outside of that 13 metre bubble, titles that are coming up now. Which, which which of the three is your favourite one, Phil, that you sort of get pumped up most for? Three guys with enough points to actually win the race, or you know, in this 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went back to Kona last year just for a holiday, just to sort of check it out, and it's a completely different place uh, uh, when there's no Iron Man there. I mean, it's actually interesting to go and see the place when, when it's just quiet, when it, Kona is just a Kona without the Iron Man. But you still, you still, when you stand on the beach there and you swim out there in the uh, on the course, it still comes back to you all the memories of the place and, and of the Iron Man. Well, you know what's cool about it is that uh, you know when you do go there race week, and race week's a really intense place. But when you do go there, the cool thing is that you are you know you can go out and swim next to you know the world's best. I can go for a swim with Sebastian King. He can be out on the swim course or Luke McKenzie or you know there's a coffee boat they have out there. And you can swim out to the coffee boat, grab a shot of coffee, and swim back. It's you can believe that it's a, it's a very good social place for a journey. You know, like the Tour de France, you go there and you catch up with the same people you see each year. The other side of it is just the speculation leading into it is so much fun because you basically have no idea what anybody can produce on the day. You spend months trying to figure it out and then uh, in the week preceding, you uh, shut your eyes and throw darts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Phil. Well, look, uh, we'll leave it there. But look, mate, thanks very much for talking to us again on uh, what a ride. And of course, for all the news we can, and views and uh, your views are very highly regarded and always interesting. Go to firstoffthebike.com. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Okay. Take care, mate. Thanks, Phil. Bye, Phil. Second best I saw the world Crashing all around your face Never really knowing It was always Mesh and lace
say so, from Albion Cycles in, uh, Bront in Bronte, in Sydney. Uh, Frank, uh, we're just having a chat with Phil Rockner from firstoffthebike.com. I loved it when he started talking about Kona and the Ironman there. It got my hairs in the back, what hairs I have left on the back of my neck. Yeah, you seem very exciting then, didn't you? Yeah. Back yeah. to training groups. Yeah, I started talking about the swimming there and my mind wandered off and I drifted off and then forgot what we're here for. This is it was quite interesting what he said about the coffee shop in, uh, in Kona. In Kona. In, so you, you swim out and then you have a coffee and swim back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. That's, a good idea, isn't That's it? what you'd be doing. That's what I'd, I wouldn't mind a little rose, though. <laughs> and then I'd probably get a boat back. Yeah. But anyway, it's a beautiful place. I'd have to say that swim. Kona is probably one of the, the best swims anywhere, like for go for an ocean, open ocean water swim. It's beautiful. The water's warm enough. It's not too hot, though. But it's so clear, and it's just very safe. And, and uh, um, it's just a, a great place to swim. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful place. And you came back all regenerated when you uh, came back after your, your holiday. Yeah. And all very keen to get going again. Yeah, I haven't really got far since then, but uh, I'll have to get keen again to get going again. <laughs> I'm sure that you will. And now, you, you've, you've been to the States a fair bit in your time. I mean, uh, Trek bicycles are the ones that you're, uh, you're the, the brand that you're, um, you sell here at Albion Cycles. I mean, um, you've been over there for races a fair bit, haven't you? Yeah, I was there many years ago for the Tour de Pontland, there oh, yeah. three, three times with the Heiko Salzwitter. Mm -hmm. I was quite fortunate to be with such a great coach, world coach, as him, as you know, he's now with uh, Sky and uh, the English for the Olympic Games for yeah. the Team Stomptrot, and uh, it was uh, very interesting times. Yeah. What, what's 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 the mentality of racing in the states? What, what's that like? You know, compared to say Europe or, or even Australia, is it a different mentality? Yeah, I think so. I think Americans are very positive in what they do. Um, it's like the old um, racing where, you know, the amateurs go off at 100 mile an hour and they last 100 k's yeah, yeah. and and the pros obviously start racing at 100, you know, mm. uh, but it's this different, um, different style of racing altogether in America. Yeah, and obviously they've got a lot of races on at the moment. We've just heard Aaron talking about Dabrowski who won the Tour of Utah. They'll have uh, later on Tour of Alberta, the uh, US Pro Cycling Challenge which in Colorado. Uh, I remember it used to be like the, uh, the Course Classic. I used to go to the Course Classic. Which then took over for the... Um, pont. To the Pont, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, there was always a great feel going over there. And, and it is different following those races and going to the European ones, but it's got its own personality, the this, this scene there. And yeah, I like great organisation in America, you know, pretty much like Europe. Every race you go to in Europe is a great organisation. I think the Americans have learnt a lot from uh, the European racing. Now, we, we, you know, we, we're talking to Aaron earlier in the show, Aaron Lee, who's over in the States right now, and probably right now he's probably getting into quarter time of the football game. Hopefully he hasn't, he's behaved himself. Now, he told us how he was, uh, did an interview, though, with Michael Farron, who's the owner of a bike store called Bicycle Bicycles, and it's in the French quarter of New Orleans, and uh, it was just recently named as the 12th best shop in the US. Now, in Australia, where does Albion Cycles sit? That's a very so interesting question. I wish you wouldn't ask me that. Uh, in Australia, we have so many good shops. It's hard to put a finger on any shop and say we're running 10th or 12th. I think we're probably running in the first 30. Um, hopefully that we are. There is a lot of good bike shops in this country. And in New South Wales, you know, uh, Clarence Street, uh, Woolies Wheels, there's a lot, you know. 
Uh, we're just very fortunate to have a great brand like Track, though. You know, that's probably puts it up there in, a, in the top 30. Yeah. Is the industry going strongly, Frank, the retail industry? Or is it, I mean, I assume it's always hard. Every business is hard these days. Oh, look, you know, if we have a great winter, it's better. If we have a very cold winter, people just don't go out. So, therefore, it's a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. But uh, things are changing big time around the world in, in cycling. More stores are becoming concept stores mm -hmm. um, where the owner decides to have one brand only. And that's working very, very well in Australia right now. Um, more so because of the internet, the way that things have gone on the internet. And we don't have to worry about the internet because we've got a great brand. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, you know, five, six brands out there that are doing this. And therefore, we, you will be successful if you're one of these brands. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, look, uh, how about we have a listen to Aaron's interview anyway with. Michael Farrand, and it'd be interesting to see what you think about what what he what he said. Uh, you know, you're half a world away, but at the end of the day, you're just trying to do the same thing. And uh, and from what I understand, what Michael's been trying to do is he he's also trying to blend into the the, the social environment around him. He's in the French Quarter of New Orleans. We're in the eastern suburbs so of Sydney, a bit right. of beach area. But it is important, isn't it, for a shop to sort of be a part of the community, not just be there just to sell and make money. You know, you well, contribute. It's one of the most important parts. You've got to be involved in racing, involved in, you know, in triathlons. Be, you know, you've got to adapt to everything that's around you. Otherwise, you don't survive. Mm, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to hear. Anyway, let's have a listen to see what Michael says about his environment with his shop in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Okay. Well, I'm right here on the streets of New Orleans, and I'm with Bicycle Michael himself, Michael Ferrand. Uh, Michael, uh, welcome to Water Ride. Thank you. How are you today? Oh. Fantastic. Right? First and foremost, you got to talk to me. You, you've had a bike shop here in right outside the French Quarter um, for 32 years. Uh, it's an iconic location. That it is. The city continues changing all the time. Well, what was it like? Yeah, obviously, the city has changed quite a bit over the last, say, um, 10 years since Hurricane Katrina. Well, in terms of the cycling, it's become more and more friendly. There's the advocates have been doing a better and better job of getting more bicycle lanes out there, which, for the serious cyclist, isn't necessarily all that we're interested in. I mean, I'm more of a share-the-road guy necessarily than having bike paths per se, but I think it's good when people are included, and if motorists understand that bicyclists are part of the road as well, that's a good thing. Now, Michael, you, you guys have, obviously we mentioned 32 years you've been here in New Orleans. Um, the last three of which, your shop has been ranked quite high across the country. It's one of the best bike shops in the world. Just last week, voted number 12. How does that make you feel as a bike store owner? It's always nice to be recognized for what you do. Well, what makes your bike shop special? Well, we are special, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> We're, we're unique in that we're not just a road shop or a mountain bike shop or a commuter shop. We have a, a pretty wide area of interest. Our, I guess our specialty comes from our wrenching to start with. Once you're, you know, if you can do, uh, if you're a serious mechanic and are not afraid of, 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 of any bike, then I think it leads you to a lot more expertise in some of the other dark nook and crannies in the cycling world. You ha would have had to have seen some crazy things over 32 years here. I mean, all the parades during Mardi Gras, Southern Decadence, the French Quarter Festival. Uh, is there, are there any memories that just stand out? Just another day on the street. <laughs> 
But I, I've got to ask, because we were talking about being ranked so highly around the U.S. and being voted so highly, ranked 12th this year. They were, I think you mentioned earlier before we were talking, um, about 10,000 bike shops, I believe, in the U.S. Uh, that number has dwindled quite a bit over the years. When I, when I started, I think it was closer to 20,000 bike shops in the U.S., and I think uh, now we're down in the mid-4,000 range. So I think... I'll, I think a lot of shops are going away, and obviously new ones are opening up, but not as many. And I think the trend is for a lot of shops to be bigger. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of you know specialty sporting goods are trying to play into the bike world, as well as manufacturers now are starting to look to go go to go direct. Um, so it's a challenging environment. But I'm, in my opinion, if you have expertise in repair and customer service, that's something that you know a mail order place can't can't deal with what is the biggest headache in having a business here not just a bike shop but just any business business is hard yeah you know i mean obviously i mean most businesses fail in the first year and in the first three years and uh you know everyone thinks a bike shop is everyone always comes in customers thinking that you know they fix their bike their bike mechanics and I think it's easy to fix your bike. It's hard to fix all the bikes. Yeah. And that's, that's what takes a lot of skill and knowledge. And you guys have a, a, a massive workshop in the back, though. A pretty, uh, how many bikes would you guys churn out a week? It depends on, on what, what's needed. I mean, we have, we have three stands up front. Donnie has a stand in the back. And then, you know, if we were fully staffed and things were rocking, you know, we have a warehouse with three stands in it to go bike. Yeah, yeah. So, that depends on and, and I mean, we have really high quality people working on bikes, so I mean, they can fix bikes well and quickly. And, if, and we also are unusual, I think, in that we stock such a wide breadth of product that you know, we don't have to stop and order every you know every time someone needs a chain. We got chains and cassettes and you know, spares and. And, and obviously, that takes a lot of overhead, though, doesn't it, to stock all that and keep it, in, you know, in store. Huge. Do you guys do any online business whatsoever to compete with some of the online? We haven't. I mean, I think our biggest strength is the fact that we uh, that we're here. You know, and you know, you buy online because you think of it as a commodity and you're, it's a price-only thing. But when when that stuff that you bought from the online company doesn't fit, or you bought a part online and it's the wrong one, you know, yeah. you're going to see how, how great your customer service is over there yeah. online. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, absolutely, you know, we mentioned, you know, the French, you know, French Quarter Festival, Southern Decadence, um, obviously Mardi Gras. The jazz, fest, there's festivals every weekend here. The, the Jazz Fest, which is world renowned. Now, you guys do a lot. We, we talked about the, the bike rentals earlier. You guys do a lot of bike rentals. We do. And, and did a lot this year as well. You know, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people opened up operations that that are rental-only operations. And, you know, most of them, their their philosophy was to go to Walmart and buy some Huffy-quality bikes and rent those out to people. Actually, even with all the people that opened up, they just ran out quickly, and then we had even more business. Oh, wow. I mean, we rented everything we had earlier. Yeah, just... Sold out earlier than ever oh, wow. with all the competition. So I mean, you know, I think people, 
I think people may go to some other people, and eventually they end up coming back because I mean we have just we have great service, we have great bikes. You know, it's one of those things where if you're a landscaper, you have the worst yard. If you're a doctor, sometimes you often have the worst health. As a bike shop owner, do you get out there? Do you have a chance to go ride as much as you'd like? Who, who can ride as much as you like? <laughs> you know, but I'm hopeful now. I've got two kids out of school now, yeah. so maybe I can get some more riding in. That'd be nice. And where do you like to go here? Like, I mean, obviously there's there's some there's some you can go out to the to Lake Pontchartrain. Um, there's a great. Well, there's some you know if you're doing road stuff. I mean, riding around town is nice. They also have a nice, you know, the levees have been fixed up. Uh, they're working on the river levee right now, but the lake levee, which leaves from Bucktown by the lakefront and goes past the airport, is in great shape. So that's a great roady place to ride. Similarly, the once they have it fixed up, the river levees very nice. On the North Shore, there's some some uh, rolling hills which I like to ride on a lot, up towards uh, Bogalusa and. Uh, closer to Mississippi, there's some very good riding. These days I've been doing more mountain biking, or haven't been, but uh, I, the last few years I've been tending to do more mountain biking, and you go to places like Homachita National Forest in Clear Springs, and Baton Rouge has some good riding, and you know, throughout the state, uh, you know, up by Shreveport, there's some nice trails that way, and Ruston, Louisiana, yeah. you know, and Texas, and, yeah. you know, and I, I usually do a year trip uh, to Sally, North Carolina every year. I mean, I've ridden all over the country. I love riding off-road. But now, you told me earlier that you're actually planning a trip coming up, but it's not a bike trip. I'm going scuba diving. Nice. I'm going to Truk uh, and Palau in wow. Micronesia. Now, have you been before? Haven't. No. And, and, and what are you most looking forward to? Well, the quality of the diving is supposed to be just off the charts. I mean, yeah. Truk is famous, of course, from uh, the fact that in 1944, I think there was... Uh, an attack on truck that was 15 times the size of Pearl Harbor. So there's, it's, it's a, it's kind of hallowed ground to the Japanese. There are a, a, a lot, lot of wrecks. There's a lot of, you know, some of the best wreck diving in the world. There's zeros down there. You know, there's tanks and motorcycles and so many planes and boats just on the bottom of the ocean. Um, it's supposed to be amazing, amazing diving. And then Palau is also famous for wreck and just the quality of the, uh, the fish is just supposed to be unbelievable. You know, you, you talk about the quality of the tourism. Uh, we, we're, we're probably in one of the most beautiful and iconic cities in all the world. It's not overrated, is it? You know, it depends what you like. I mean, there are, there are cities that are maybe prettier in some ways. I mean, New Orleans is pretty, uh, and the swamps are pretty, but it's, it's, it's different than the mountains, which I love the mountains, and it's different than the seashore, which I also love the seashore. Um, but New Orleans has its own special ambiance. And certainly, if you're a foodie, which I am, and you love great food, and you like to be able to walk to, to great food and great music or, or cycle, I mean, it's very doable by bike. Any, anywhere in the city is accessible in 20 minutes. Well, can you give us a local's insight, a quick local's guide on where, where are the best places, where are your favorite places to go in terms of, uh, of a good drink or perhaps some good food and good music? Well... Great music. And we're, in, we're out, like, sitting right across the street from Spotted Cat, DBA, Snug Harbor. <laughs> Frenchman Street is some of the best music in town. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's hard to be beat. The other, you know, certainly uh, Oak Street is very nice. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places, but I mean, Frenchman Street, some, or Preservation Hall, yeah. are unbelievable. And as far as food, you know, you, you can't get bad food here. If you get bad food, um, you know, the places just wouldn't survive. Yeah. Oh, what's your favorite dish? Home cooking. Yeah, just anything, <laughs> right? 
you know, I mean, there's so many fabulous places to eat here. Um, you know, I like Brightson's a lot. Yeah. It's a wonderful place. Frank Brightson does a great, great job. And I went to port call last night. Yeah. I always have to hit port call Not Cajun fare at all, but what a great what cheeseburger, a great, baby potato. Good, good hamburger and some good grog. No, absolutely. I actually got the Huma Huma. I always get actually, the Huma Huma. Actually, there's, always, there's often a line over there, so... Snug Harbor has the same meat. Yeah. So you can yeah. get that same burger pretty much and, and without be, the line. And it'd be a lot quicker, right? And catch world-class jazz music yeah. without moving. And, and there's always, you're literally, your bike store is right next to Snug Harbor, and it pretty much always has a Marsalis or a Neville or someone of, the, of that ilk playing. When I first moved to New Orleans, we would walk down, we'd walk down the street, down Decatur Street, and uh, they used to have a boat called The President, and the Nevilles would play there almost every night. And so you'd walk down the street and someone would say, here's some free tickets to see the Neville Brothers. And you're like, nah, I saw them last night, it's okay. And you'd walk another 15 or 20 feet and some, someone else would say, here's free tickets to see the Neville Brothers. I'm like, ah, no thanks, never mind. And another 20 feet, someone, and you're like, fine, I'll go see the Neville Brothers again. <laughs> it's amazing. Or That's, Dr. John, I mean, it's just what like... A, what a problem to it's have. A pro- you know, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, I... I mean, I like Snug Harbor because it's one of the few places that's a, a sit-down kind of jazz club, which yeah, I like. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, maybe I'm a little older. Yeah. It's a little more upscale, but uh, I just love it. And it was actually, it was called the, when I first moved here, it was called the Fulborn. Okay. And back then, first night I was here, my host that I was staying with ended up playing there. Really? And so the second night I was in New Orleans, I went to a party at their house, and... By the third night I was in New Orleans, because at their party, everyone who was already one in the jazz music scene was there that night. By the third night, any time I'd walk into any jazz club in the city, I'd be on the guest list. Oh, wow. So I'd walk into Tipitina's, they'd be like, oh, you're on the list. Yeah, yeah. You know, you go to the Tyler's Jazz jazz Hall, oh, you're on the list. Yeah. So, so it, you're it was a, rough. So you're a transplant. Absolutely. Where are you from? Uh, I was born in New York City. Yeah. Lived in Paris for a few years as a child. Yeah. Lived in Chicago for about six. So is it when you were in France, you fell in love with cycling? Uh, I loved cycling beforehand, but when I moved back and all my friends were riding Stingrays and I had a drop handlebar road bike, yeah. you know. What was that first bike? Do you remember? It was a Peugeot. Yeah? Yeah, nice. Yeah. In 1969. Wow. Wow. How many speed? I think that one was just a one speed. Was it? Yeah. One speed drop handlebar road bike. And there was no looking back. No, no. Yeah, you know, obviously, uh, we're right here in the middle, you know, in the deep south of the U.S. This is football country. Uh, LSU Tigers, New Orleans Saints, which, by the way, has a preseason game tonight. tonight. Oh, yeah. Tonight. Play the uh, Ravens. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll catch that at the R bar. Doesn't, uh, doesn't count for anything, but we'll still watch it. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you follow the pro football? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, How, more, more prof- Personally, more professional than college, but. How are the Saints going to do this year? I think it's a rebuilding year, but I think they'll do, they'll do better than last year. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully they'll go all the way. We'll see. Fantastic. Got to believe, right? Uh, always. Thank you. Who that? <laughs> Thanks, Steve, Michael. My pleasure. I touch your lips and all at once the sparks go flying. Those devil lips that know so well the art of lying. And though I see the danger still. Flames grow higher. I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire. Just like a torch, you 
upset the soul with envy burning. I must go on along the road, no returning. And though it binds me, it turns me into ashes. My whole world crashes, loud choke is the fire. I can't resist you. What good is there trying? What good is there lying? You're all that I desire. Since voice I kiss you, my heart was yours completely. If I'm a slave, then it's a slave I want to be. Don't pity me. Don't pity me. Give me your lips to lift you. Only let me borrow. Love me tonight, that will take tomorrow. I know that I must have your kiss, although it dooms me, though it consumes me. You kiss of fire. Can't resist you. What good is there in trying? What good is there denying? You're all that I desire. Since first I kiss you, my heart was yours completely. If I'm a slave, then it's a slave I want to be. Don't pity me. Don't pity me. Give me your lips to lips. You only let me borrow. Love me tonight. Let the devil take tomorrow. I know that I must have your kiss, although it dooms me, though it consumes me. The kiss of fire. What a ride! I'm Rupert Guinness, and our special guest for this week, Frank Conceso from Albion Cycles. Frank, uh, that was an interesting interview um, with Michael Ferrin from Bicycle Michaels in the French Quarter of New Orleans. It almost felt like uh, I was there. Yeah, it's interesting when you... Uh, it's, um, it's quite interesting. I've never been to New Orleans, but I've just... Can, in my mind, I was trying to picture what was going on there. Mm. And I can just see the guy... Um, he's probably French anyway. and Or he would have to speak French being yeah. in that quarter, but... Um, It'd be very interesting to know all the places where, where to go and, you know, what music's on tonight. And just imagine the, the riders coming in the morning and coffee all around. It's just an amazing thing. Now, one thing we, we did mention during What a Ride in this episode about you being Portuguese. Perhaps we didn't highlight it, but it just got dropped in there. Now, you, you are Portuguese, so you've, you've, you've got that uh, Portuguese spirit, shall I say. Um, uh, how proud are you of Portugal? No, no, not you know. Taking the, uh, I'm not making a fun of you in this moment. Not yet. No, of course not. <laughs> Portuguese jokes will come later. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, I'm, uh, I'm 100% Portuguese, and I'm very proud of being Portuguese. But I'm also very proud of being 
an Australian. Um, and I have children which are both Australians and grandchildren in Australia as well. Portugal is uh, the nation that uh, discovered the world. And for those that don't know, the, Portugal was first in Australia as well. Uh, the Dutch might have something to say about that. And Captain Crook, I oh, know, sorry, Cook, he might have something to say about that. But uh, in realistically, um, we were the first in Australia, and I am very proud. There's a couple of other things Portugal's known for, isn't it? Like uh, the Portuguese tarts, those little cakes. Yes, and you know the other Portuguese, uh, Matheus Rosé. Yes. And it's called Matheus Rosé. Ah, Matheus Rosé. Matheus Rosé, that's Mateus right. Rose. Which you've drank plenty of. Rosé or Matheus Rosé? Both. <laughs> yes, I'd say so. I'd say so. <laughs> But it's um, uh, like in the country, Portugal's a beautiful country, isn't it? You've just been back there. It's great for cycling. They've got some good races there, what, you know, Tour of Algarve, uh, one, of the, one of the top races. But um, is, is that a, an area that you think is sort of untouched as far as cyclotourism is concerned? Or? Well, I think both. I think that Portugal is an untouched by uh, not a lot of Australians go to Spain, they go to France, they go to Italy. Um, if you ever touch Portugal, you'll be very surprised, and I think you'll go back again because it's such a beautiful country. Look, we were Spaniards before we were Portuguese, and I hate to admit that, but that's, that's the history. But um, for cycling, it's a beautiful country, and let you into Luda Secret. I am trying to buy a place in the Algarve where cycling is the big. And the tour of Algarve is a beautiful tour, and plenty of mountains in, in, in Portugal, obviously, um, but it is a beautiful country. Oh, well, look. Going get an invite when you when you get the house there. Oh, you've got an invite already. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Hey, um, also obviously there's a lot of things coming up in the next uh, couple of months from, from cycling triathlon. Phil Rockter told us about the Ironman. Um, uh, have you had any of these any Ironman entrants coming into the shop recently? You know, do you sense that sort of buzz? getting close to Ironman time? Yes, look, uh, as uh, Phil said, there's a lot of events right now. There's uh, three uh, world titles coming up, and we're already getting the uh, people, uh, obviously, in our turbo studio with Chris Hanrahan coaching those people. Uh, people coming in now to pack their bikes to go away, to get there earlier so they can uh, get uh, you know, motivated and get the feel and the buzz of the, the triathlon. So that is happening right now. Actually, one thing I would like to ask you, like, in our last episode, we had a chat with Stephen Moore, the Wallabies captain, because um, uh, obviously I, I report about rugby, rugby union as well. And, you know, now, over the years we've often spoken about cycling, so I realised he had an interest in, in particularly the Tour de France. Um, but obviously in your capacity as a, as, a, as a cycling coach, you know, we've had some footballers who've come in here. We've had Simon Poitivan, Warwick War, two uh, former Wallabies. Um, uh, I know we've had... Uh, um, some rugby league players um, who've come and gone, I guess, as well, but you still see them around. When you see footballers come into, into the sport and you're trying to train them and coach them, what's, what's the biggest challenge for you there? Well, to be totally honest, um, with people like uh, rugby league or rugby union or any player like that, it's easier to coach those people because they are so disciplined mm -hmm. and they actually listen and they know that you're trying to teach them something which they don't know nothing about. Mm -hmm. And I found uh, Simon Portovan, which I was introduced to, and I know nothing about rugby union. Um, and the guy, captain of Australia, you know, yeah. one of the biggest sports person in this country, and so easy to deal with. Uh, Warwick Ward, the biggest man I've ever seen, stand next to the guy and you think you're in the land of giants. Yeah. Again, easy guy to coach. And 
I found them very interesting and very exciting to coach. Yeah, was anything you learned about coaching cycling that you learned through their, I guess, experience of being elite athletes in other sports? I mean, well, I just found that it's. Uh, Look, you learn a lot from everyone, um, and from Simon Portovan, and um, that you can go. Simon Portovan told me a story how he became a, such a great rugby u uh, union player, yeah. and it was very interesting. And what it means is that if you put your mind to it, you can become a great, a great uh, athlete. And I try to take those things on board. If I try really hard to coach someone and do the right things, I'll become a good coach as well. And that's what I've learned from these people. We've seen also another person, Stephen Ainsworth, who's a champion sailor, yachtsman. He's, uh, he won the city to Hobart a few years ago on his, on his now sold uh, yacht, uh, Loki. Um, I, just, I remember when, uh, when he first came along and uh, I knew who he was, but I mean, it's been interesting to see his development, but from, from yachting, I think how you see Stephen's uh, commitment to cycling is all the detail, you know, like, you know, any, you see him, he does love his detail, but he's, he's a very good cyclist, isn't he? Look, I knew nothing about Stephen Ainsworth and, um, and then things that people tell me and questions that I ask him. He's a great sports person. Firstly, Sailor of the Year twice in a row, yeah. you know. I mean, that's an achievement in itself. Um, but he, a little bit hard to coach because in a sense that the harder they go, the better they, they will do. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, in cycling, it's not like that. But he, I, I've been coaching Steve for some time now, and the achievements that he's had, because he's put the hard work in himself, yeah. not because I didn't put the hard work into it, but just qualifying for the veteran worlds. Mm. Um, he's been in Europe now uh, cycling really hard over the mountains. He's come back really slow. Now to try to get that slowness into fast switching, you know, yeah. And he's such a great athlete at his age that it's incredible. Yeah. Well, look, Frank, it's been really enjoyable uh, chatting with you today. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can come back on the show at any time you'd like to. Please just let, let us know. But we'll get in touch with you for sure because it's, uh, I just, uh, it's not just cycling. It's not just triathlon. It's not just swim, bike and run. It's just about how sport and uh, sort of... Uh, I, it overflows, one sport overflows to another and also into society and to what people are doing. You know, we've spoken about the local communities and the impact of cultural uh, differences and all that sort of stuff. And uh, with you, being Portuguese, Australian, <laughs> here in Bronte. A long way from Portugal here. <laughs> you are a mixed bag. Anyway, Frank, look, thanks very much for being on What A Ride for this episode. I hope you've uh, got a little bit out of it yourself. Um, as for everybody out there, thanks for listening on What A Ride. You can catch What A Ride on, uh, on the internet and also on iTunes. And um, Aaron S. Lee uh, will be back from his US assignment in a, several weeks, but we will be staying in touch with him as he's travelling along the way in the US. Frank, once again, for, thanks for being on the show and to all of you. Uh, take care and be safe. Thank you, Rupert. Thanks for having me.
Just like heaven